0: Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. There's a time in most of our lives when we dream of an overseas adventure and working in London, Tokyo, and of course, New York. I spent two years in London when I was transferred to work for News Corp. My guest today was more ambitious than that. She threw in a job and started again. That guest is Nabila Ahmed, a leading business journalist who carved out a whole new career with Bloomberg in New York. She returned to Sydney during the pandemic. But Nabila has just accepted a totally new role and is returning to the US. In this episode, we explore how she made the difficult decision to throw in her existing job, to chase that dream in New York, and the groundbreaking new role she has just accepted, which has far reaching implications for how businesses approach gender equality. Nabila, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Can we start by you telling me a little bit more about yourself and, in particular, how you became a business journalist?
1: Helen, it's lovely to be here. How I became a business journalist is basically because I was told that there was something I couldn't do. And there's nothing that fires me up more <laughs> than someone telling me that there's something I can't do. I really wanted to be a journalist because I loved cricket and I wanted to follow cricket. So I was a cricket journalist to start with. And then a a few years into that career, I thought, you know what, I would love to be a foreign correspondent. I worked for The Age at the time and there was a job overseas that came up and uh, my application got rejected. And one of the (laughs) things that the editor said was that, oh, you've only got sports experience. That's not enough to do something as serious as a foreign correspondent role. And you need to go and do something else. So I thought, okay, what is the hardest thing I could do and the scariest? And that was business because I knew nothing about it. I'm not that great at numbers. Yeah, so I switched to the business team from sport. such
0: such a great insight (laughs) into you. Um, So I'm going to be intrigued by the answers to your questions, um, the rest of the questions today. When you were covering sport at the age – There was no diversity of gender, I imagine, let alone any diversity of colour and race. So you would have been quite a
1: novelty at that time. I was one of two people, two women in Australia who were covering the sport. And
0: what did that look like for you on a daily basis?
1: It meant on a daily basis, I would turn up to press boxes or press conferences or to meetings where I was always the one, the only woman in the room, always ever the only person of colour, unless we, it was an international series and India was playing Australia, <laughs> that would be different. And actually in India, they have a lot of, they had at the time a lot of female cricket journalists. Two things that stood out for me during that time, one was, you know, you get the odd sexist remark or sexual remark <laughs> from the subjects you covered, that's one thing, but there was also... A degree of hostility that I maybe wasn't expecting for just doing my job. So one time, there was a story that I worked on, which unveiled some discord within a team that I was covering. (laughs) (laughs) Did not go down well. I remember that... Why? Because you weren't (laughs) entitled to write a story about that? uh, The coach pulled me aside and said, you have to decide what team you're on because you're supposed to be on our side. And you writing this story ahead of an important match is actually giving our opponents an advantage. I had a call from someone else at the governing body um, who said, your ambition is getting in the way of what's the right thing to do here and you really need to think about how this is going to affect the players. And I thought, wow, I must be really
0: powerful. <laughs> well, that's right. Yes. Of course, in journalism, that's like catnip, right? We, you know, the idea that you're actually creating change in the environment, that's the thing that we most enjoy experiencing. So was that your reaction? Was it the joy of it and the excitement? Or were you still young enough to kind of be like, oh, maybe I'm not playing the boys game and I need to pull it in?
1: No, I felt really defiant. And I thought, how dare you question my ambition? And this is not about my ambition getting in the way. I'm simply writing what's happening. I'm just reporting what's happened. You're not saying that it was inaccurate.
0: Now, I imagine uh, that's happened for the rest of your career. So you end (laughs) up in business where you really are playing A grade, right? How did that ambition go in the business (laughs) reporting world?
1: Actually, in the business reporting world, having come from sport, I didn't really see the gender imbalance as much. There were many more, more women covering the subject, but also, no, obviously, there aren't that many women CEOs, but there were a lot more women in the businesses that I would write about. So it didn't feel as stark as sport. But obviously, we're still talking about the fact that there aren't enough female CEOs on ASX 200 companies, for example.
0: Did you see yourself at the time as being an activist for? gender issues in business or were you still trying to make your way in what is a pretty male dominated field of business journalism
1: I don't think I ever saw myself as a gender activist I was just there trying to do a good job and yeah just getting trying out get, there breaking the story getting the scoops
0: yeah doing the doing the doing the work
1: yeah this is a podcast for
0: young women who are doing that are in the job getting promoted starting to experience a lot of the challenges that you've experienced. One of the things that I wanted to explore with you was the bravery of leaving at the time in Australia was a career that was on the rise. You were highly regarded. You had job offers from rival news organizations. You were breaking a lot of stories. You knew the Australian business community and the key players as well as anybody. But you had this yearning the whole time to throw it all in and uh, move overseas. Can you talk a bit about that period of time?
1: So I wasn't as lucky as you to be sent as a correspondent by the paper I worked for. The AFI used to have a bureau in New York, but newspapers obviously had a lot of troubled times, classifieds drying up, et cetera. That bureau shut down. So I knew that if I wanted to still go and live in New York and work in New York, I would have to make that happen myself. And as I became more and more senior in the paper, my last job there was as a companies and markets editor, I started to realize that the longer I would leave it, the harder it would become. And I really, really wanted to do it. And I thought I would really regret it forever if I didn't do it. And it so happened that the paper announced a massive round of redundancies. So I decided to take one.
0: It wasn't that easy though, was it?
1: Well, I mean, it was and it wasn't. So I knew that I really had to do it. And it was something that I had been thinking about for a really long time. I had done a stint in London in my mid-20s. And I always thought, oh, like, what if I had stayed on? It would have been so cool. So I always had that in the back of my mind. And I know that I always regretted the fact that I didn't then stay on. But, you know, I came back and I had a great career at the AFR. I had a, you know, it was super fun. I won a Walkley Award on my way out. It was great. But I thought, if I don't try this, I will regret it. And I knew I would obviously be leaving my family behind a relationship that I knew may not have survived. (laughs) And those bits of it were hard. But the fact that I had to do it, that was never in question.
0: Can we talk a bit about that? Because I've just been um, chatting earlier today to Wendy McCarthy, and she talked about connecting your head with your heart. And the only time she's made bad decisions is when her head overruled her heart. How long did it take you to reconcile those two things and then take the difficult step of unpicking your life in Australia?
1: I had thought about it for a long time, but I was also really enjoying what I was doing. So it wasn't an everyday thing of saying, oh, I really hate this. It was just that I need to get to this. I need to get to this. And it came to a juncture when the redundancies were announced, I thought, actually, here's my chance because if I stay, I would only get a more senior job, <laughs> which I was offered. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> I need to go now. <laughs> This is trouble. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, from that perspective, it was, it was a decision that was easy to make because of that. But then on the personal front, it was really difficult because, yeah, I knew that it would probably create a lot of upheaval, but I had to go ahead anyway
0: you do things like I do, and I've done it today, even today, is like, I'm going to take it as a sign. If this happens, then that's the sign that I need to do X.
1: No. <laughs> I, I, unless, unless it's a sporting event, and it's about like, if I stand here, will they get another goal? Or if I leave the room and the Matildas are playing really well, I should not come back into the room. Okay, well, I do that about my whole life. <laughs>
0: um,
1: let's talk about you get to New York.
0: You're king of the castle in Australia, in Sydney, and you have to start again. I'm looking for, you know, that advice for anyone who's listening to you going, all right, it's been on my mind for a while. I'm listening to Novella. I need to do this. What advice have you got when you actually take the leap and you turn up in New York?
1: Back yourself. And have a plan in your head for what is the worst thing that could happen and what would happen in that instance. Just have a think about that. In my case, it was if the worst thing happened, I would come back to the AFR and get a more senior job and probably on more money than I was before. That's not that bad. I also really thought about the fact that when I got there, I would probably have to start at a different level. And I thought, it's okay, I can get myself back up. And I actually, when I first joined Bloomberg, it was a day it was in those glory days when the US dollar and the Australian dollar were at parity for a, right. a few moments, and I ended up taking a fifty percent pay cut to get that job because I turned up there, they didn't know who I was. it's a hugely competitive market. and I was assigned as a senior reporter on a team that covered global credit markets which at that time I didn't really have a lot of idea about because I hadn't really covered that. And in Australia, that market was very small. So in my interview, in one of my final interviews, I said to them, as long as you know that I don't really know the difference between a bond and a loan, and I realise that's what this team covers, it's fine, I can learn and I can do this. And my boss at the time said, that's fine. You seem smart, you'll pick it up. I can't believe you said that.
0: I actually have no idea what the purpose of this whole, <laughs> this whole field of reporting is about. And you still got the job.
1: Yeah, I, I guess it was a technicality. But, you know, journalism isn't about being an expert. It's about being curious. And it's about being persistent. Or at least that's what I think it's about.
0: How did your natural ambition go on the floor of Bloomberg, starting sort of towards the bottom?
1: I think they loved it. I was in a newsroom full of uh, – the Bloomberg newsroom in New York is incredible. We have about 1,000 reporters and everyone's so smart and so highly educated. I'm definitely still probably one of the least educated people in that newsroom. But everyone wanted to get to the next thing, wanted to chase big stories and really fueled each other. I loved it.
0: What about personally? You're in New York, job's going well. How are you finding your feet as a fully rounded human being?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I very early on, um, probably a few months into my being in New York, I happened to be walking through Central Park on a very nice autumn day. It was beautiful. The leaves were changing colour and it was gorgeous. And everyone was cheering because the New York marathon was happening. And it was a really powerful and emotional moment for me to see all these people cheering on these runners and I had never been a runner, and anyone that knows me, like you do, you know I'm totally the opposite of an athletic person. But I decided, you know what, I'm going to run the marathon next year. And I told a friend, and she said, have you ever run a 5K? And I said, no, but, you know, I'm that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, do you want to do a half marathon with me first? <laughs> um, so I actually just signed up to a, a running team, and I started running. Very, very badly. But I did the New York Marathon the following year, and I did it two more times. Crazy. And it was amazing. I was one of the slowest. It took me more than four hours, (laughs) pretty much, (laughs) to finish. But it was incredible. And I feel like I got to connect with the city in this incredible way. Because I think when you're on foot, you get to see a lot more. You get to really feel the energy. And we would do all these runs all over the all over the city. And it was amazing. And I met a great group of people through there. I also, very early, early on, even before I actually started the running journey, I went and volunteered at Central Park because I rented an apartment near there and I really missed the beaches and this open space of Sydney. So I thought I would go and do that. So on a Saturday morning, I would be gardening in Central Park with... Mostly a bunch of very old New Yorkers. I was the youngest there by about 25 years. But they had the most amazing stories of New York. And I don't even know if they were all true, but they were so amazing. One guy told me about how his dad taught Grace Kelly how to ride a horse in the stables of Central Park (laughs) for a movie she was doing. I
0: guess that's plausible, right? Probably happened.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. And it was a nice way to connect. And, and those old ladies really took me under their wing. And they invited me out to their holiday house that summer. And it was just lovely.
0: Fantastic. So your advice is throw yourself into the city.
1: Yeah, throw yourself into the city. And initially, when I got there, because I didn't have a job, I had a lot of time on my hands. I was applying for jobs. But I also thought, what can I do to make myself feel more like part of the city. So I volunteered at the Central Park. I volunteered also at a soup kitchen and it was really eye-opening.
0: What is your advice looking back
1: on that transition period? It's going to be bumpy. Remember that and try to be kind to yourself. And there were very high highs and low lows initially because um, one of my friends says is because you're in the washing machine and you have to wait for the cycle to stop before you can equalize and you just have to give yourself that time and somehow try to keep faith that it will work out.
0: I'm going to move on now. Thank you for that. (laughs) That is, is super helpful and, you know, a testament to you that you did do so well in New York. and. Ended up coming back to Sydney, but we're going to miss the coming back to Sydney bit because that's the boring bit. Um, I think it's the boring bit. Um, you probably think it was the exciting bit. So you came back during the pandemic and you took up a, um, a role in Australia with Bloomberg. But it's the new role for me that's extraordinary, what you're about to go into. Can you describe it in your own words?
1: So I am the new team leader for our global equality coverage. And funnily enough, the equality team writes all about inequality. And our job is to elevate issues of race, gender, diversity, and fairness within the markets that we cover and societies. So that could be the finance industry, that could be within a government of a country, that could be in just societies that we write about. Do you see anyone in Australia right now doing that? I think people do it in bits and pieces, in pockets. For example, we will write about, oh, what's happening to the number of women on boards? Or where's the diversity in Australian businesses? But I don't think anyone has a dedicated team devoted to writing just about those sorts of issues.
0: And what do you think, well, I, you know, this has never been done before. So you're, you're, you're um, forging a whole new path in terms of the pillars of journalism, which are normally crime, business, sport. Politics, the usual things. You're, you've turned equality into an actual pillar.
1: What do you think the interest is going to be? So, Bloomberg's been doing it for a number of years now. And we think that, you know, our job is to write about business. So, we're writing about the business of equality. And we're more and more honing our coverage to really focus on the businesses because that's where our audience is and that's what they want to know. And right now, particularly in the US and Europe, Issues of inequality and how companies handle issues of diversity and social inclusion, et cetera, it's one of the most burning issues facing companies right now. We've got two law firms in the US that are being sued because they have a diversity program because the Supreme Court just said that universities do not need to have an affirmative action plan. So a lot of these diversity, equity and inclusion plans that companies had set up, are now potentially open to attack and open to legal attack. So in America, what we're seeing is that a lot of companies who were previously very vocal about these efforts are quieting down about it. Not necessarily that they're not doing it, but they're being less vocal about it. And they're trying to figure out how to still keep at it without becoming a target. I feel like that's different from even the first time you and I started talking about this yes. job, yeah, <laughs> yes. right? Yes, it's a fast-moving landscape., yeah. it's actually the most exciting time to be covering this because there's a huge tension now, and it's not about it's not only about writing worthy stories about you know we should all be fair and equitable, et cetera. It's really it's a matter for businesses to figure out how to go forward. One of the t- reporters on my team this week wrote a story about a company, an online job search company, that's offering $10,000 relocation payment for transgender employees who want to move out of certain states in the US that are really going after LGBTQ people to safer states. And this company has come out and said, we will help you if you're, either if you're a transgender person or if you have a transgender child and you are feeling under attack. Can you see any parallels in Australia? Yes, I think around the voice. You know, there are obviously issues around gender, which we'll get to, but around the voice, I am seeing some parallels because you saw Big W recently had to reverse its attempt to come out in support of the voice in their stores. So they had an audio message playing that typically would do a welcome to country. During NAIDOC week, they also added a support, a word of support for the voice in that, and they faced a customer backlash. And then they deleted that line off of that messaging, so you can start to see those issues starting to become, you know, starting to come on uh, the radar here here as well. Tell me how you're thinking about approaching the role then. So I think because of this tension, our job is really easy <laughs> because we just write about that. We just say like, how are companies dealing with it? What yep. are they doing? And are there different models for how to do it? So America does it one way and that that approach is now under attack. Europe does it slightly differently. They talk about positive bias rather than affirmative action. And what does that mean? And are we going to see that take on more? We've also got a lot of multinationals that operate, you know, they may be based in the US or UK, but operate here what are their policies going to be for supporting something like The Voice or gender equality in Australia versus what they're having to say publicly overseas? Are they going to have to quieten their efforts on that front too?
0: Against this backdrop, you're leading a team? Is it the first time you've led a team?
1: No, it's not, but I haven't for a while. Yeah. So are you,
0: what are, how are you feeling about being a leader in this environment?
1: It's really exciting. It's a little bit nerve-wracking too. Yeah. Because
0: I think all of us elite teens have to navigate this space and give uh, thought to what organisations think and feel about these issues and how we express ourselves. I come from a background of journalism and balance and you and I talk the same language on this, but I have a team of advocates in some ways and advocates for different issues with different priorities so I'm interested to understand how in America leaders are managing this within their own teams, like the Woolworth, like the CEO of Woolworths. You know, how does he find himself in a situation where he's agreed to that only to then take it down?
1: It's so tricky, isn't it?
0: Really tricky. Yeah.
1: And we've seen similar things happen in the US and in Europe as well. I think... You just have to be as authentic as you can be and clearly communicate your position, but also then be prepared to be adaptable. Because if you're if you are facing a customer backlash or if your staff are being attacked, then you have to take that into account.
0: You are going to be leading this debate, not only in terms of what you publish to the outside world, but also how you think about the issues internally. How equipped do you feel for what I feel like is going to be a daily awkward conversation with someone that has a differing view and wants it to be accepted, acknowledged and potentially taken on board?
1: I think it's going to be a constant learning experience and I think that I'm prepared to be very, very open and just admit, look, you may have more knowledge than me. My expertise is understanding what our audience wants to know and what is news from our business perspective. And we may have differing views and we may have ideological differences, but that is not the, our job in that piece of writing that we're doing. On a, In a day-to-day journalism, you know, you you've been a journalist, we're trying to achieve balance and we're trying to present both sides. And sometimes... That will mean presenting a side that you don't necessarily agree with. But we have to sometimes, we do have to seek out the views from the opposing side.
0: So, we had an incident here in Australia recently where a very much loved journalist personality, Annabel Crabb, chose to put Peter Dutton into her television show uh, because he's the leader of the opposition. She comes from a completely traditional journalistic kind of thinking about that stuff only to face extraordinary degrees of backlash because um, it was seen as platforming, um, supporting a a racist, which was, you know, one term, but someone with a differing view on a whole range of subjects. Like, that's the environment that we're in at the moment where even the alternative prime minister in this country shouldn't be interviewed or (laughs) reported on. Um, That's going to be your full-time space. I don't want to terrify you. I feel like I feel like I am suddenly giving you like a second no, thought about, about that great job in New York. Um, and I guess I just, I guess the question is discomfort. You know, how good are you at discomfort? Um, um, which I think you've already said. You feel
1: you feel you feel you're okay in that space. I mean, I ran three marathons. I'm pretty good with discomfort. <laughs> great answer. Um, what
0: about? being challenged? What about being, you know, put on the back foot, you know, being accused of something? Like, how good are you at managing the feeling of defensiveness and you need to defend yourself?
1: I know that I'm good at saying sorry. And I'm always ready to admit when I'm wrong. And I'm not going to get it right all the time. It's impossible. But I think having that open mind to say, come and tell me. I want you to tell me where I've got it wrong and let's have that debate. But let's do it in a civil manner because we're all on the same team. You know, when it comes to this, is I'm talking about my team. Mm-hmm. And I think that to a degree, we have to lean into that debate. Yep. And you've seen Annabelle not shying away from that. Yep. And you have to lean into it. and. We have to say at some point it's good that we're having these debates because it's good that we're having those clashes and actually having that conversation, because too often nowadays people are so polarized that they say, "Oh, I couldn't even talk to you about that." Oh, you have that view of about that. I'm going to just unfriend you on all of my, from my life. We can't possibly be friends if we support different political parties or if different football teams. That's right, and I
0: think I think the voice is really going to challenge a lot of people. And while we're just talking again to. Um, the icon that is Wendy McCarthy about creating that safe space for people to have disagreements and it be okay, but that requires a, a fairly um, a fairly nimble leadership um, style. So, but, but I also think um, the benefit of time, like it, if you can set the boundaries and give yourself time to have those conversations rather than doing them in the moment, is a much safer space to be. Although in a newsroom, sometimes time is not something you have on your side.
1: That's so true. I recently got some advice about listening well and about just listening to someone's viewpoint without nodding or interjecting in any way at all, whether you agree or not. Just sit there and sit with an impassive face, hear them out, and then say your piece. And I think even in a newsroom environment, you can probably do that because remaining calm is going to be the key. And how
0: plausible or feasible is it, do you think, to not have an opinion and express or express an opinion? Do you think we can get
1: away with not having an opinion anymore? I mean, we're trying to make a career out of it as journalists, right? We're not supposed to have opinion. I mean, you can have an opinion, but that can't be interfering with your work. Of course, everyone has opinions about things. And one thing about this particular job I'm coming into is that a lot of people have, have a lived experience, I have a lived experience of gender bias, for example, some race, racial issues, for example. But I have to set that aside. You know, that can inform my thinking, but they, I can't let that be a bias in my reporting.
0: But let me give you an example of the voice, for example. Is it even remotely feasible to be in a workplace, forget about being in a newsroom, and not express a view?
1: Do you have to not express a view, or can you express a view respectfully and say, This is what I think, and you may disagree, and it's fine to have a disagreement?
0: I think that's actually your only option. I think it's very difficult for people in the workplace on this particular topic to probably try to avoid an opinion at all, unless you kind of you know, say, oh, I'm reading it, and I don't know, and I haven't heard about it, which I'm sure there's vast numbers of people across Australia that are doing. Completely different things and haven't had a chance to catch up on it. But
1: um, maybe having that conversation will teach you something, though, that you don't know. I think too often people shy away from having the difficult conversations in life in general, not even just in workplaces. And I'm all for difficult conversations. Let's have more of them. <laughs> I love it. What sort of qualities do you bring to leadership, do you think? Curiosity. I think I'm a clear communicator. Correct <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse.
0: <laughs> it's always better. Um,
1: unclear is unkind.
0: So no one's left wondering what you think.
1: Yeah, but I have learned to try to do it in a non-aggressive way. Are you good at giving feedback? I like to think I can give feedback. I'm not afraid to give feedback. I also don't like to shy away from those conflicts. I think it's better to have it out. Not in a screaming match kind of way. But
0: have it out, move on, and then the air's cleared.
1: And I'm also a very loyal person and loyal to the people that I will be working with.
0: And what sort of leadership styles do you like working for?
1: Empowering.
0: Someone who's not going to be looking over your shoulder.
1: Someone who just tells me how you know go and do this thing, and if I need help, I will ask. Yeah.
0: I'm mean, interested just to, just to circle back briefly um, before we wrap up to the role in New York. Are you seeing any other organisations take these ESG issues as seriously as Bloomberg?
1: Well there are others who write about it. It's a question of what resources do you have to throw at it. We are in an enormously privileged position at Bloomberg in that. We have some incredible resources. We work for a private company. And, you know, most of the profits that Bloomberg makes actually goes into charity. So it's a different kind of balance to, say, a newspaper that is answerable to shareholders.
0: Um, I think when you spoke to me first about it, you said Bloomberg is seeing this rise of these issues in the same way that, media and organisations saw the climate change debate. Do you think that's still comfortable?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because this is a very, it's a big risk for companies. How they deal with these things and how they deal with woke capitalism for want of a better term and how they're fashioning themselves around these debates, how they're signalling to their workers about these debates that is at the core of who is going to succeed as a company tomorrow. For example, we had a story yesterday about Standard Chartered offering 20 weeks of paid parental leave to mums, dads, and adoptive parents regardless of, you know, who's the birth parent, et cetera. And they're, at you know, they're ahead of a lot of American companies in that. And that story was very well read on our platforms Because companies are also really eager to find out what competitors are doing and they want to attract and retain talent. So they're very interested in those issues of culture. But
0: are we seeing, and I know we're straying off um, a traditional topic here, but are we seeing an environment where we had a skills and labour shortage? And so, and I think we saw this with the big four, you know, even as early as this year, where there was huge demands to hire the university graduates and the young brightest minds on Big money. So and then offering quite generous additional days off and culture leaves and birthdays and parental leave entitlements. But as the economy starts to experience, you know, more pressure with rising interest rates and cost of living and inflation, is that going to reverse? Are we going to see the reverse of those opportunities being offered in, in companies and those, you know, incredibly generous. Perks and benefits start to be wound back, which that in itself is going to increase tension in in everyone's lives.
1: Yeah, we already have seen some companies rolling back some of their benefits. So Twitter, for example, in the US is one of them. But I think the companies that are thinking longer term know that that's their opportunity. And that's going to be the difference between what happens longer term. And talking to senior executives in Australia about this they feel like you need to think of this as a as a longer-term issue. Like, what do you want to ultimately do? And offering something as simple as equal parental leave for mums and dads means that mums can come back to work sooner. So that helps narrow the gender pay gap because they you've got greater labour market participation and higher wages. It also means that dads are not seen as Well, they have a more equal role at home. And we've seen the studies that show that that has better outcomes for the family but also for the children. So if you're a company who's thinking in a more holistic way and you can afford to do that, then that's what they're doing. Because Standard Chartered coming out saying this, it's, you know, that was just yesterday and Twitter's already started to roll back. So you could see that there is a gap emerging between two types of companies
0: just to finalise on on on, a, on the gender issue, you started in sport, you went into business, um, and now you're going to be thinking about gender the, like a lot, right? This is going to be the <laughs> thing you think about consistently. Have you seen a lot of change in your career in terms of things getting better working as a as a, a young woman working in, in male-dominated areas?
1: I think there are certainly more examples of women in more senior positions. That's for sure. I think right now on the ASX, I think on the ASX 200, something like, just under ten percent are women CEOs that was not the case twenty years ago when I was starting out so that's good but the pace of progress is so so slow that you know you look at these studies and they say it's going to take a hundred and something years for women to catch up to where men are in terms of of the working environment uh, yes it has changed to some degree but some of those very old, biased ideas are very, very hard to kill off. They just are, you know, and I don't know how, you know, I don't know how we deal with that. Mm. But those ideas still persist uh, and ideas about women and their roles and child rearing and do you lose your brain when you are pregnant Uh, and all those kinds of things. And I don't know how to address how to address that. Like, what's going to change that? Love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Well, I'm just going to pick you up on that because you did have a baby in the middle of all this. So <laughs> did you also get, did you also find that was that was a challenge in terms of people, you know, how they Yeah, there were a few remarks. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, somebody said, when I, so I, I took a year's maternity leave. Bloomberg's very generous. We get six months at full pay, which is one of the most generous uh, policies in Australia for sure. And when I came back, I came back full-time. The number of people who asked me, just in general, how many days are you back? (laughs) I'm back full-time. Well, what does your baby do when you're at work? (laughs) He's at home doing the grocery shopping online and making my dinner. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of questions like that. And actually, somebody even said to me early on when I came back, they said, oh, you're back at work, so are you ready to go back on holiday now? So the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's interesting attitudes, but I will say, having worked in the US, I found that there, at least in the companies that I dealt with, and obviously Bloomberg that I worked for, taking maternity leave or going to have a baby didn't really affect your career path at all. In fact, I know of several women who got promoted while they were on maternity leave and came back to bigger roles. I found that in Australia, just the attitudes around it, and I actually wrote a story about all of this when I first came back because I was really struck by the difference in attitudes towards women and their careers versus what I saw in the US. And it's partly because of the really high cost of childcare and the fact that traditionally, Australia is still very traditional in gender roles. And it's partly to do with the fact that we have a very high proportion of single-sex schools compared with the US or the UK. There are a lot of issues like that, but even companies that overseas are saying are really trying to talk the talk and walk the walk on gender are not really doing it through their Australian subsidiaries. And I don't know why.
0: Don't know <laughs> but, why. But I
1: mean they should be pulled up on it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean I think it, it comes up time and time again that Australian we're just behind.
1: It's really interesting. But even on women, I had a recruiter tell me recently, a recruiter for the financial services industry who told me that everyone's looking for female candidates, but how can I recommend them? I have to recommend the best. And I said, are women candidates never the best in your experience? And he that- said, rarely, because they just don't have the experience. And I said, well, how would they get the experience if they don't have the jobs, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if they're not put forward for any of these jobs?
0: Nabila, I just want to finish with what does good look like for you in New York? What does life look like and where's the the future for you?
1: I am hoping that we can do some impactful journalism that really make people sit up and take notice. And as I said, I'm coming into it at a really exciting time when there's so much debate about these issues, there's so much tension. I think there's a chance for us to make a real difference and I'm really looking forward to that. And I know my son's going to come back with an American accent, and I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> I am just so excited by the job that you've got, and so excited to see what you do with it. Because, you know, I know how tenacious you are um, with everything that you do. So, I'll be watching from afar, and we'll have you back on to find out how it goes.
1: Looking forward to it, and please come and visit. Come and visit us in New York. You know I will. <laughs>
0: This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin, series producer is Holly Mitchell, and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.